You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 41 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Tuesday, the 31st of January. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Tommy Potterston. Hello, everyone. Harrison Avery. Hello, hello. And Asha King. Nice to be here again. Tommy, first podcast. Yes, it's my first. I'm excited. A little yeah. bit nervous, but... And uh, how are you finding settling into Nasara? It's very different to what I'm used to, but uh, there are a lot of similarities to my home in Cornwall. It's a small community, so that makes me feel at home getting to know everyone quite quickly. How, uh, how do you think the waves are different from uh, back in Cornwall? It's a lot more consistent. The water's a lot warmer, <laughs> but in Cornwall we do get really good waves. Uh, it's just few and far between, I'm afraid. Have you been up too much over the last couple of weeks? I had some friends from Cornwall come and visit me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best friend from home, and she brought her boyfriend, who managed to break my longboard. He put his knee through the deck of my longboard. What <laughs> a visitor. Yeah, what a visitor. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have him over. But, you know, I didn't give him that much stick because I've done that to many a friend in the past. I think maybe three or four longboards I've snapped that didn't belong to me. Tommy, you're pretty heavy-footed. I think I am pretty heavy-footed for someone who doesn't weigh that much. (laughs) I think this probably reflects more on my character than yours, but I I can't imagine me lending my longboard out. Devastating. I think you you, you put a hole in your board about, what, two days after I had a hole in my board? Yeah. So So both of us are dry docked. Devastating. (laughs) What have you been up to, Ash? I've been back in Costa Rica for, I guess, about a month now since our Christmas holiday, and we've mm-hmm. had such a good run of surf in this month. It started out really small, but at a good angle, so mm-hmm. everybody's riding longboards. I think that's why we had such a longboard supercharged podcast last time. <laughs> and then um, the last week, we had a west-northwest swell running, which was pretty rare to get that angle here at, yeah. at that size and it, all the beach breaks just lit up we had a couple of really good days so i've been trying to surf as much as i can we did i think three mornings in a row we were up well before there was any light in the sky yeah about and, as early uh, as you can dro- go drove north and uh, got in the water before the sun was up yeah because it was such early morning i'm I'm a bit of a slow riser, so I have a bit creaky in the morning. So I decided, ah, oh, it's kind of big. It's a lot of current at this beach break we're surfing. It, it, there was a bit of size, so I thought, oh, I would just ride my, my bigger board, which is one I ordered for Indo. It was a, a 6.4 Rusty Blackbird with a real pulled-in tail. And they actually sent me something way different than what I wanted. They sent it, uh, first of all, I ordered black rails, and they came neon orange. <laughs> but uh, the board was a lot thicker than I expected it. Yeah. And getting it for Indo, you don't always need a lot of paddle power because yeah. the waves there break in relatively the same place. But here, where the beach breaks are such a big playing field and there's so much current, this board was just right in its element. That's what they, uh, what they reckon the Blackbird model is for, isn't it? It's like yeah. paddling around and like getting a bit of a paddle advantage. Yeah, I felt like I was cheating. I felt like I was just uh, well, I won. Th- I felt like you were cheating as well, which was why the second morning I brought my big board as well. <laughs> I don't, it's just great having that little extra bit of foam. I mean, you, you, your wave count just triples. Yeah. You can kind of hunt down the ones you want. You can kind of find the bigger and square ones instead of scratch around. Definitely. How did you get on, Harrison? Because you did not upscale your boards. I did not upscale, although the board I was riding that day for me was a little bit bigger than what I'm used to. I was on a 5.8 Pisalian. You ride the smallest boards. It's ridiculous. I ride 5.8 step up. 5.8 step up. Yeah, the waves were insane. We had a really fun run of swell, and it was nice change of pace from what we've had. We've had a lot of pretty small fun longboarding days so it was good to get some barrels and those those couple of days actually just based on the swell direction the way the sandbars were set up 
we were getting a lot of rights, which for me is backside. Yeah. And usually when I'm surfing waves like that, I would prefer to go left just because it's a little bit easier to tuck in on the left than it is going backside. And, and we started talking a little bit about backside tube riding technique. And I think, you know, it's probably one of the most technically challenging maneuvers in surfing. And especially when the waves get a little bit smaller and you've got to fit yourself in there, it gets you thinking about, you know, positioning on the wave and body positioning and and I had you, I think you were watching from the shoulder on one and you were, you were saying that most of the time it's a case of either the body being too, the torso being too far forward, not straight up enough and, yeah. or too far down on the wave face. Yeah, I think definitely it's, you know, bow riding's never that easy because it's such a, you know, it's such finite control of the board keeper, you know, controlling the altitude on the waves to, to a very fine degree, but that's a lot easier on your toe side because as human beings, we've got quite good fine control over toe pressure. But then backside, like heel pressure is kind of a bit of a blunt mallet of a tool, you know, it's just, it's kind of on or off. Yeah. And so when you're then trying to pull into a tube and make those tiny little adjustments to make sure that you don't drop too low or too high, that's why a lot of people tend to use sort of a grab rail technique because you, mm-hmm. you can then take some of that fine control rather than trying to do it with your heels. You, you try and do it with the, the muscles in your arm, which do have a bit more fine control. I think you, you both got some of the best waves I've ever seen you have. It was fun. It was fun. I I was particularly pleased with it because generally, like say Harrison, we were talking about uh, backhand tube riding techniques and stuff. And I think the mistake that I always made, you know, is you, you take off, you grab the rail, you stick that uh, leading arm in the wave face to slow down. And then generally I just leave it there and watch the tube spin away from me and, and get stuck in there. And I, I was very pleased uh, that one morning I was, I was making conscious efforts to come off the brake and onto the, the gas pedal. And, and working on, on, okay, when do I need to bring the weight forwards? And, and you know, what, what's the visual cue that the wave's doing? That means I need to come off the brake, I need to get my arm out, I need to get my weight onto the front foot and try and get out of it. Yeah, I think that one in particular you're talking about, I think you're being a bit humble. You got pretty much slotted on that. That was about <laughs> as barreled as you could have gotten I got a front row day. seat to that one, and that was a beautiful barrel. One of the nicest barrels I've I, seen. I, that see, I was ever. very pleased that you took yeah. off on the wave before me. So <laughs> <laughs> I took off. I had an audience. (laughs) Nothing is worse than when you get a wave that's just like at the top of what you you know what you're looking for, and then you look around at the end and just nobody sees it. No one saw it. Oh damn! On the subject of technique, I I have a bit of a editor's note on some of the technical aspects of longboarding that you guys got into <laughs> on the last show i feel like i was left out a little bit some of the we waited till you were absent for a week to uh, throw down some pretty strong comments. i know some pretty <laughs> strong claims uh, specifically with the size of fins you should be using and a bit of backside nose riding technique so i'm going to kind of hit those one by one is, is this going to turn into like the audio equivalent of letters to the editor i know in one week ruse on and one week i'm not so we can't like really <laughs> such, said. we can't really address this head to head but um on the conversation of fin length i honestly i do not remember using the same length of the fin in inches that the board was in feet well am i wrong in saying that 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 kind of for a, a standard sort of flex longboard fin that's kind of the unwritten rule, isn't it? Yeah, it maybe, but probably more on a two plus one. I've certainly heard it in the past. It's not the first time that I've heard the idea of nine foot board, nine inch fin, eight foot board, eight inch fin. Yeah, uh, but uh, for th- example, on my standard long boards are nine seven, mm-hmm. and I either run an 11 inch Greeno 4A, which is kind of the just really classic flex fin mm-hmm. template, or a 10 and a half inch uh, hatchet by Takayama. So those are two 
like pretty oversized fins. And on the other hand, my go-to longboard would be a nine-foot board with something like a seven-seven-inch fin. Yeah, so pretty pretty <laughs> varying <laughs> degree. But yeah, when it comes to choosing a fin for a longboard, there's so many variables that are going to be more important than length of fin to length of the board. For example, tail width is really important when you're talking about fins. Generally, with a wider tail, you want to have a larger fin, and that's just going to hold the tail in a lot more when you're on the nose. Another example is a broader faced wave. So for the listeners, a, a wave that has more of a gentle slope or kind of a longer face, uh, you typically want to surf a fin with more rake. The bigger fin with more rake is going to allow you to draw out your turns more, which is going to be a lot more appropriate for those style of waves. Uh, on the other side of the coin, a really tight faced waves like the beach breaks I grew up in Florida, it's a real tight pocket. Uh, so you want to have a pivot fin to draw the, the short turning radiuses that are going to get you in the best spot. Yeah, so the, there's, there's a ton of variables that come into it. Uh, even, you know, a flex fin, because of the lack of surface area in the tip, you're going to elongate it a little bit more. So it is more complicated than length of fin to uh, length of board. So just wanted to clarify that. Second, probably more fun is backside longboarding technique and this is a bit complicated, so if you want any more specifics on it, guys, email me. In the sake of time, I'm going to just do a bit of a simplified version. So yeah, before you talk about nose riding technique, I think it's really useful to think of the mechanics of the board and what's allowing you to get to the front. So uh, when, when you're trimming the surfboard, or essentially what we're saying is locking in the rail, if you have a lot of surface area in contact with the water, there's a flow of water up the wave face and the flow of water up the wave face coming in contact with that long engaged rail gives you a lot of lift mm -hmm. uh, kind of equally across the surfboard and that lift is what gives you the stable platform. Now a lot of people who are introduced into nose riding will hear that it's the weight of water on the tail and there is a bit of weight on the water on the tail and water is pretty heavy it's a little over 60 pounds a square foot so that does contribute it but in my opinion the biggest factor is that lift so mm -hmm. when you're thinking about the mechanics of what allows you to walk forward you want to think about getting that rail engaged and then not disrupting it so getting that rail locked in and then not doing anything that would allow that rail to bob out but just like you said on backside tube riding you get a lot less leverage off of your heel. So that inherently makes backside nose riding more difficult because it's tougher to, to make those fine changes in pressure. So what I typically do is I keep a lot of weight on the inside rail, but with my front foot. So I'm a goofy foot. That would be my right foot uh, on the nose. Now the purpose of that is to keep the rail engaged, but I can move my, my back foot forward and back pretty easily. So the difference of hanging five and hanging 10 without messing up that rail in the water. Make sense? Mm -hmm. The harder thing about backside nose riding is when you have imperfections in the wave. So when you have white water or a not perfect section, so a lot of really, really good backside nose riders will actually switch their stance mm -hmm. so they can get that fine control from the toes. Um, so that, that's another useful technique. It's one I'm not perfect at, but it, but it's a bit helpful. So um, it's, it's, it's really, it's in that last final stage as you're hanging 10 or you're, you're going from hanging five to hanging 10, you're just kind of pivoting a little bit so that your toes are over the inside yeah, rather than your heels. Yeah. The toes instead of your heels. Cause then you can just, by changing those little bit of control, you, you're going to be able to hold that, that nose ride for a bit longer. Right, but the, the walk forward and the walk back would still be done in your normal style. Yeah, and that, that really goes down to how proficient you are at it. I, I typically would switch in my last step 
or I'd actually hang 10 and then switch in that step to hang longer uh, by toes. But yeah, if you're really good at cross-stepping switch stance, you can do the whole thing. What Rue was saying, and I'm going to have a lot of hand movements on this. So he's a goofy foot as well, and he would be having his trailing foot further out over the inside rail. So if you can close your eyes and pretend that your, your nose riding along backside and your left foot is closer to the inside rail, mm -hmm. that's what he was saying to hold it longer. But that presents a couple of issues. So the two things you want to be able to do is change your weight back to correspond with how powerful the wave is, and you want to have your chest square to the front of the wave so you can see what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And when you put that heel behind you, uh, you're, you're just by the way that your hips shift, it's really hard to square your chest. Mm -hmm. It'll also be really hard to remove that back foot to come to hanging 10 without knocking the rail out of the water. So you're kind of limiting yourself there. You might be able to do like a super long hang five, but that's not quite as technical as, as being able to shift forward and back to hanging 10. So that's why having the weight on the front foot is a little more appropriate. Did that make sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think so. Okay, rolling into the news then. And I think probably the, the biggest story of the last couple of weeks has been the closure of Surfing Magazine. I guess it's kind of been on the way out for a while. I don't think anyone was too surprised when they finally closed the doors on it. But it's been going a long time and it's it's kind of end of an era for that. Yeah, that's that's I'm a bit nostalgic. I had a surfing magazine subscription forever growing up. Had a, I have boxes and boxes of surfing magazines, probably all of them from about 99 to maybe 2010 sitting at my parents' house. Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Because once Transworld folded a few years ago, like surfing magazine was the only one that was really going after the youth market. Mm -hmm. But obviously the youth market is you know increasingly are not buying print publication they're they're online they're on instagram and yeah uh, so i don't think surfing is going away surfing as an institution is going to continue it's just going to continue as an online it's funny uh harrison and i were flipping through some surfer magazines on the table and with the exception of surface journal surfing print is that's a tough business to be in it is like yeah. the amount of ads per story is pretty lopsided and yeah, it, it it is tough. You know, we, we, we're so used to consuming media instantly that, that to have to pay to get a print version, you know, weeks further down the line is it's kind of a tough pill to swallow. I, I, I always feel as well that with the surf industry being as small as it is, taking those adverts compromises the journalism so hard. Mm -hmm. you know, when was the last time you saw an honest review of any product in a surf magazine? Do you remember those holiday gift guides that are always at the back of the magazine <laughs> yeah, that are those. just like, they're absolutely ridiculous. The second real big story is that Owen Wright is finally returning to competition. He's entering a QS, the, the local QS competition near to him in Newcastle in Australia. It, it's kind of been a little hush-hush. Like, I haven't seen, have you guys seen any footage of him surfing? I haven't seen any footage of him surfing recently. I saw one clip of him surfing about six months ago, and it was like grainy iPhone footage, and it was so far away that it totally could have not been Owen Wright, but whoever <laughs> it was, was ripping. It's doing pretty well. I remember they put uh, an Instagram post out about six or eight months ago saying he was back on a shortboard, didn't he? Mm -hmm. I guess it'll be interesting to see how he does in this QS and then whether he, because he still technically has a slot on the WCT, mm. uh, if he if he feels fit to return to that. I'm pulling for him. Yeah, me too. I love Owen Wright surfing. He's, yeah, I mean, he, when he was on tour, he was one of my favorite surfers because he's so well-rounded. I mean, he absolutely charges. He's a very technical surfer, but he also surfs with a lot of power. And my favorite, some of my favorite contests to watch were when him and Kelly Slater were going head to head, just back and forth, those three contests in a row. Yeah. yeah. And he was just 
ripping and pushing Kelly Slater to rip even harder. And that's, you know, when those rivalries come about in competitive surfing, that's the best time to be a fan. Yeah, he's one of those guys that he's, he, when he was young, he was so famous for, you know, his airs and spinning above the lip. And then he matured to just a hellman. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm two thumbs up for Owen Right, Good luck. Please, please rip. Yeah, for me, it's always been uh, it's always been nice to see, you know, the bigger guys on tour like Owen Wright and Geordie Smith. Um, you know, the the majority of the world tour are uh, twenty or thirty or even forty pounds lighter than I am. So it's it's nice to have the occasional person that's weighing in somewhere. <laughs> the world tour is much more compromised with people of Harrison and I's height rather than your height. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's nice to have the outliers in there. Also in the news, Rusty Surfboards have announced that they're going to start shipping boards as standard with anti-shark paint jobs. Have you seen this? Oh. That, yeah. I, I, don't know, I don't know how strong the science is. I think we, we've got a whole build-up of, of sort of funny stories about anti-shark gadgets. I sort of feel like we should probably do a, a long feature on it. Yeah, it's amazing if it works. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask. I mean, we don't surf in a particularly sharky area. Like, of course, there are sharks, but there haven't been any recently recorded shark attacks, to my mm-hmm. knowledge. Say you were surfing in a place like South Africa. Would you invest in any of these products you've seen? Well, I think if, if I had confidence that they might work, then, then yeah. But so much of them seems to be pretty pseudoscientific. And well, I, I think shark bands took a big hit the other day, right after Christmas, when that kid who got the shark band had jumped Absolutely. off. Absolutely. Oh, that's my neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the kid just gets a shark band for Christmas, all is well, goes out and paddles at the inlet in New Smyrna, boom, hit by a shark. So yeah, I guess on the subject of sharks, uh, Mick Fanning has been made an officer of the Order of Australia, uh, which is, I think, the highest civilian honor that can be bestowed on its citizens. I think it's kind of similar to, we have sort of OBEs and MBEs and Knights of the Realm and things like that. I don't know what the, (laughs) what's the American equivalent? Like if, if someone does something pretty momentous, you know, real great sports person or something, and they were to be given an honor by the president, what what would they give them? Presidential Medal of Freedom, which Joe Biden received. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. From Obama a couple weeks ago. Yes. Yeah, so I think, yeah, that's the highest civilian honor. Harry, I was thinking of a sports person in England or, or in Britain, the British equivalent to Mick Fanning, and we've yeah. got David Beckham. David Beckham. <laughs> that's yeah. great. Is he a sir now, or is he he's an MBE? He's got something from the Queen. He's I can't got remember something exactly. From, yeah, blimey. Anyway, yeah, Mick, Mick Fanning, honoured for services to sports. And I think that just being knighted sounds way cooler than getting a medal. <laughs> yeah, I'm a knight. I think I'd rather be knighted. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's cool. You know, Mick Fanning is such a stand-up guy. Like He's so well-rounded just mm-hmm. as a person, not only as a surfer. I think if you could have anybody representing your country and, you know, with Australia surfing such a big deal, like yeah. he would probably be the guy that you would want. No, he's a fantastic spokesman. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he does a huge amount for charities you know make a wish foundation and things like that donates a lot of his time final story which really isn't surf news but it has done the rounds on every bit of surf media that i've seen over the last few days is the uh mark zuckerberg making everyone in hawaii very angry by he uh, did he stepped on some toes huh he seems to have stepped on some toes but as far as i can work out it seems to have rather inadvertently stepped on some toes for those of you that haven't followed the story um mark zuckerberg the ceo of facebook bought a pretty massive track of land in Kauai that was meant to be turned into a big housing development. Mm. So I feel like that's got to be a good start. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, but it turns out there's, there's a lot of small titles. Yeah, little tracts of land. Within the big ranch that he bought that are still owned, technically owned by local families, but a lot of it will have been inherited without the knowledge 
of who owns it. So no, nobody really knows, you know, okay, this parcel of land you technically don't own, mm-hmm. but somebody needs to have right of access to it and we don't know who owns it. it. Apparently he was advised by someone that you go through this process to find out who owns it. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like there's been a bit of a nasty history of that law being abused for kind of forced acquisition of land and kind of stealing land from, from local families and stuff. So Yeah, my, my understanding of the story was pretty much like Zuckerberg is wanted to buy a big piece of land. I, I can't fault him for that. I may, yeah. If that was going to be a big housing development, I think it's more advantageous for one person to own it anyway. Yeah, it just seemed honestly like a mistake. He didn't know how to acquire the little tracts of land. There was a big kickback against him. He said sorry. Yeah. I, I mean, based on everything else he's done, he seems to be a pretty philanthropic person. I can't imagine that his intention was to... Uh, it would seem against everything else mm-hmm. that he's done if he was going out there to purposely screw everybody. Which is funny because that's what all the surf media has reported it as. Yeah. I've the, seen like Surfer, The Inertia, everyone reported it as Mark Zuckerberg tries to screw Hawaiian people. And it's like, it's ah, an interesting jump. So, yeah, just as we were saying earlier about finding out news online first, last week through Facebook, I saw a lot of shares of... Um, Joel Tudor's Instagram and it was a screenshot it appears to be a screenshot of an email he'd been sent stating that from then onwards all longboard competitions in the WSL run by the WSL would be single fin only so I checked out his Instagram and yes there it was no kind of idea where that screenshot came from but it was there on his Instagram sort of a follow-up to the conversation we had a few episodes ago Mm actually where we were talking about the different criteria used to judge longboarding Mm -hmm. and uh yeah, sounds like they're changing it in, in kind of the direction that we were talking about. And um, on that podcast episode, you said that no change would happen overnight. Yeah. As the screenshot kind of suggested it would. And yeah, the, <laughs> the article that came out, the only article I managed to find online, suggests that actually the decision has been scrapped and they're going to have more talks about it. Yeah, I think it was, it was two events. So they're qualifying series events. And I think the surfers just protested it. I think they just said, oh, no, we can ride whatever we want. There must be, just because of the last 10 years of competitive longboarding, there must be a ton of guys who make their bread and butter from competitive longboarding who really would actually be, be pretty disadvantaged by being put onto a single fin board. Yeah, and we're, we're going to hear actually a bit more about the subject in an interview that's coming up later in the podcast. <laughs> but I, I think it makes sense. The WSL has already changed the format to invite more traditional longboarding. They made that clear in China. And so sort of the problem is they're trying to push longboarding this route, but they're not attracting the talent that they want. So I think that this single fin was sort of trying to mimic Joel's events, the the duct tape, to invite that talent to the contest. Because right now you have the best (laughs) longboarders in the world who are just saying, ah, no way, I'm not going to that. Uh, So I think it's just making it a little bit more desirable to them. Do you think that by making it single fin only, it would be exclusionary to people who wanted to surf thrusters? Ooh, tough call. Um, yeah, I honestly don't think that the requirement should be on fin setup. And this is coming from a point of view that I totally support it being traditional longboarding. Mm-hmm. The tough thing is until they make that statement, they're not going to get the talent that they want. They're not going to get the Tyler Warrens. They're not going to get the Tommy Witts, the Justin Quintals, the guys that are really pushing longboarding and they're the best on nine foot plus equipment they're not going to want to go to the event until until something like that happens 
to a certain extent as well. I mean, you know, they're tweaking the format to try and get those guys to come along. To what extent I feel like the longboarding community has quite a, a sort of non-competitive vibe to it. You know, to what extent are those people, even if they are the best single fin longboarders, are they going to change, you know, the way that they've marketed themselves just because the WSL has changed the way that it's it's set up? I think uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, look back at 1999, uh, Joel Tudor won a world title on a three fin, uh, trying to just <laughs> fillet his opponents. So you definitely can transition. I mean, they are the top guys in the duct tape. The, uh, Tyler Warren, he's kind of the the sole cruisy guy, and I've seen him do helicopters at lower trestles on a two plus one. Uh, it, it back when we were kids at, at national. So. I, I honestly think if that talent is going to the events, it's going to help everybody. It's not zero sum. It's, you know, the, the WSL is going to benefit from having a more marketable event. Uh, the surfers are going to benefit by getting more financial backing. I, I, I guess the only guys that aren't going to benefit are the ones that are trying to hold on to the top to bottom, riding a really long shortboard approach, to which I guess you got to adapt. Yeah, to some extent. But... Joel Tudor himself is, you know, he's on his Instagram claim that he's been one of the main people pushing for this move and he's been doing so by running his duct tape events. Do you think that with time, if first they started by including a single fin, with time they might start to talk about weight restrictions for boards, increase the length restriction, start to say no to leashes, that kind of thing? Do you think it would all follow in the way that he's run his competitions? Yeah, well, I think that once you get the culture of promoting these certain type of surfing, then, then the others are going to phase out without rules. You know, I, I think that a, a weight restriction on the board, so saying that if it's trim-based surfing and you're going to favor, you know, nose rides in the classic, you know, drop-knee style turns where you're really leveraging that big heavy single fin, you don't really need to add the weight restriction and you don't need to ride, add the length restriction because those are just going to come by way of the criteria. It's it's the, the fact that if you're rewarding a certain style of surfing, the, yeah. board, the boards are going to evolve. Yeah, naturally. Naturally to benefit that style of surfing, which would take us more down the sort of boards that you know you tend to ride, Asher, mm -hmm. and, and maybe away from the boards that you tend to ride, Tommy. Well, Tommy, you were talking about restrictions on the equipment possibly being exclusionary to people who want to ride a certain type of equipment. But to me, it seems like it comes more down to like the judging criteria and what people want to see. I wonder if there's room for somebody who is surfing more trim-based on a single-fin longboard to be surfing in the same contest as somebody that's surfing top to bottom on a, on yeah. a thruster. I'd, I'd argue Joe Aaron would. Yeah. Who, yeah. who we sometimes talk about, me and Asha. Joe Aaron. <laughs> He's a character. Yeah, he surfs big single, uh, big single fins. They're main, mainly like nine seven plus, I'd say. They're single fins. He surfs them top to bottom. He nose rides. He drop knees. He kind of does the whole package. Yeah, he has never been, you know, invited to that duct tape invitational. And to me, that's kind of going towards what I was saying about it being exclusionary. It's kind of you've got to surf a certain way to be part of this event. You've got to have a certain image to be part of this event. Which kind of it's like. I thought about it as comparing it to to car racing like high performance surfing is like fast racing it's like rally driving whereas this is kind of turning it into a more classic car event which for the future of it doesn't leave much because where are they going to take it if they're just going to keep it restricted into this old conservative classic style yeah I don't know I think <laughs> that yeah the best way to surf these boards is in that classic style and I'm sure it will evolve in a, in a certain way And I'm do you think it will evolve or do you think 
these restrictions are going to make it limited to not evolve. Oh, well, it already has. I mean, single fin surfing has evolved a ton. You look at mm-hmm. the surfing that, you know, in the 90s, it was basically just trying to mimic the surfing of Donald Takayama, David Nueva, and these guys at, at the pinnacle. And they, they, they basically copied their boards. And since then, the logs that they're riding in the sprout generation and the logs that they're riding now in the duct tape events are, are a lot different. They're a lot more foiled out. They're still low rocker, but they do have a lot of foil. So it, so kind of bend on the bottom half of the board. Um, fins have improved a lot. Bottom contours have changed a lot to make them a bit more versatile. But mm-hmm. to keep that trim style, you still have to retain a certain length and a certain width. So, yeah, I, I'm sure it will evolve even more. I think the what you said as well about the, you know, the comparison with, with motor racing, I think it's a good one. But when you think about motor racing... Which I know nothing about, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I, I was going to say, when you think about motor racing, really, it comes down to you have a couple of pinnacle sports, don't you? You've got, you know, NASCAR, F1, uh, Rallycross. And everything else is a a feeder into those everything else is the equivalent of the wqs world tour you know you're trying to do well at formula 3000 so that you can step up and eventually become a formula one driver mm-hmm. and the classic car rally stands itself alone and and it, you know the, the 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 lower seeds within motor racing don't draw the crowds that uh you know a real classic car rally like goodwood mm-hmm. does mm-hmm. so you know possibly it's not a bad thing to and it, and it, and you know not exclusionary. It's just it's just drawing a different sort of a, a surfer. Uh, you know maybe they'll start forcing them to all wear really short birdwells. Yeah, short event. shorts, big stripy t-shirts, and have mustaches. Yeah. For example, <laughs> I'm wearing a very short pair of birdwells as we I, record. I can see a considerable quantity of your thigh <laughs> from across the room. I th- I think it's interesting because it comes down to like it's really opinion based when you're trying to figure out like what is the best longboarding is it yeah. somebody who's doing airs on a longboard or is it somebody who's nose riding yeah. i mean it's i think the same issue comes into the you know the WSL shortboard competitions you know like shortboarding is always evolving and like we've recently had this new school generation where like airs have started to come into competitions and people have had to adjust the criteria but we never went down that route of everybody just pumping down the line and doing one big air. Like there's still, the criteria is still in place to support mm-hmm. more traditional, like rail based surfing, like Mick Fanning or, or Joel Parkinson does, you know, like those guys can still win contests even without doing air. So like, I think the longboarding criteria is, is shifting and what they're naming the best surfing is maybe being reassessed. They've always included the aspect of traditional longboarding. That's always been in the, the yeah. surfing criteria. Uh, they've always rewarded for nose rides in cri- critical section, but they've also re- um, been rewarding for difference in manoeuvres, so the more different kind of manoeuvres you can do in a wave. Yeah, the, the previous judging format used to, you could only get 75% of marks for any if you only used one style. So if you went out and you were really progressive longboarding, you could only ever get a 7.5 mm-hmm. unless you threw in some traditional and vice versa. If you went totally traditional, you could only score a 7.5 unless you threw in something progressive. Which seems to me inclusionary. It means that trust, uh, surfers on thrusters can uh, compete and will compete and surfers on single fins can and should compete. The only downside I see with that criteria is that it, it forces you to mix both on one wave. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you're, you're forced to try and do progressive longboarding 
and traditional longboarding all on the same wave rather than say it would be much better and I don't know how you do it but it would be much better if you could say allow someone to take off and surf super traditional on one wave and, and you know link the style on one wave and then go out and do a real progressive performance-based surfing. I don't know. I'm, I'm relatively new to the longboard scene. Like I, I didn't really follow longboarding up until recently, but Tommy and Asher, you guys have both been longboarding for a long time and, and you take relatively different approaches to it. From a like kind of an outsider perspective, to me coming into this discussion, it sort of feels like there should be two different contests because to me it's like two completely different approaches to surfing a wave. Like Even though the boards are the same length, the style of surfing is so different to me that it seems like they shouldn't be surfing in the same contest. Like the guys surfing in the duct tape should be surfing with their own set of criteria. And instead of trying to squeeze these two types of surfing into one set of criteria, just let them go down their own paths and, and duke it out on their own. And I think that's the issue altogether, isn't it? They're, they're struggling to push these two together. By having a competition where you can surf either thrusters or longboarders might favor one or the other. By having something that does exclude one or the other is in its in its name exclusionary so it's yeah. hard to, it's hard to do both as of right now there are the two tours so there yeah. there is more duct tape <laughs> and uh, okay. there is the WSL, WSL version of longboarding when you look at them objectively uh, duct tape gets much higher views much higher prize purses because of those higher views much more marketable and and now the WSL I think is trying to like all right give me a piece of that pie let me let me bring just that in there with um with the higher views I was just wondering because I don't know this myself in the heyday of performance longboarding were the crowds on the beach as big oh yeah at the the US Open back in the day it was so huge it, so to me it kind of hit a um hit a point where it was really popular and then just didn't evolve in order to keep people coming in towards it to keep drawing those crowds exactly whereas by starting something like the duct tape you start a niche you start something i think harry in one of the previous podcasts you said watching it was more obtainable for yourself mm -hmm. so it's starting to draw a niche well i i think as well you know the, the traditional longboarding plays into the whole hipster culture mm -hmm. to being a little bit retro to you know so much of what has become fashionable in the last you know in, not just in the surf world but but fashionable within the wider world within the last five years, riding old school traditional longboards plays into that massively. So hence you see the replacement of a longboarding world tour stop at the US Open with the Duct Tape Invitational because it, it that draws a crowd that the US Open couldn't grab in any other way. Mm -hmm. That they have nothing else that plays into hipster culture. Yeah, and Harrison Roach, he, he once said that single fin nose riding in two foot surf wasn't going to change the world. Um, and, you know, people, when he paddled out, this is a couple of years ago, I think it was 2003, this article was written, when he would paddle out and surf around people, people just wouldn't understand what's going on. And I remember some of my personal friends who are really good at single fin longboarding now saying similar sort of things. And it's kind of like it came in at the same time as that hipster or that edgy kind of trend just hit us, just not within surfing itself, just kind of hit us globally all over within music and skateboarding and everything. Well, I mean, the... the the reason that professional surfing can exist is because people want to see it. You yeah. Know, people mm -hmm. are paying for it. So because it's such a subjective thing, the criteria and what people want to see and what people deem as good longboarding, like if now at this time people are saying like we want to see more of a traditional approach to, to longboarding, to me it seems like that should be the direction it goes. Yeah, it's just like when aerial surfing started to get popular, the criteria had to evolve to incorporate it or you're <laughs> going to lose your market. 
I, I think it's just kind of what's a more desirable way to surf the 90% of waves in the world. Even taking the whole like, oh, it's a hipster culture thing. It's hipster marketing. Because I, I don't personally think that that is that big of a part of it. Even taking that out on 95% of the waves around the world, a longboard works better. What advantage do those longboards have? You can trim them. They're surfable from the front half of the board. It's those bonus stylistic things and the nose riding and the, the cross-stepping that is what thrives on those boards. So let's judge it towards what those boards do best rather than you know, what somebody can do on those boards to make them look like something else. But you can nose ride and you can trim on a performance longboard with three fins. Yeah, but you can't do it as well. In the waves that call for a shortboard, you know, a, a punchy breech bake, snapper rocks, Chopu, we're, we're, we're judging shortboarding on those waves. Mm -hmm. These guys are riding the advantages of the shortboard. You know, trimming a shortboard isn't going to score points. Because although you can hang five on it, you know, you're going to cheat a five on a 6-0, that's not the best use of that craft. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, you can do a big cutback on a nine-foot board, but it's, it's not the best use of that craft. You know, maybe at some point it might be necessary, but you're judging the, the heightened version of that surfing. Agreed. But so does that not then leave space then for a middle ground where you, you've got the two extremes, you've got performance shortboarding at one end, you've got a log at the other end, and you've got the majority of everybody else, the majority of the world is using something in between the two. And I think that's what's going on. The WSL is a is a you know a mechanism of deciding that 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 what people want to see is more on the extreme. So that middle ground isn't marketable, and that's why they're shifting it away. I think that's a really good answer. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. And on the subject of longboarding, I <laughs> promise, guys, we we just really get on this when the waves are smaller here. The next one will probably be a really shortboard charged argument. As, as, but, as, uh, as soon as March rolls around and the swells start coming, we'll be back onto shortboards. But yeah, Rue and I had the chance to sit down and have a conversation with Robert Wingnut Weaver last week. Yeah, we we mentioned in the last show that uh, you and me got to surf with him a little bit, but you managed to pin him down for an interview. Yeah, through a through a mutual friend at Birdwell's, Jeff Clawson. Thank you very much for the introduction. I was able to get in contact with him, and he was staying up in Tamarindo, so I drove up to Tamarindo, surfed with him for the morning. Rue and I did, and then we're able to do a little interview with. Him. So that was really a, a pretty cool experience, which I I think turned out really interesting. And uh, here's the results. All right, I'm here today in maybe the most pleasant place we've ever recorded an interview, beachfront at the Volcano Brewing Company just up the coast in Tamarindo. We're like looking out and it's offshore wind and it's a little bit small, but um, you guys were couple, making the surf look pretty good this couple morning. couple waves rolling through and we have the honor of interviewing Robert Wingnut Weaver today. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, you guys. Thanks for traveling up the coast for this one. I mean, I thank you guys also for... Uh, Sharing the waves with me down in uh, Guiones last week. That yeah, was, it was quite pretty fun. fun. Yeah. We, had, we had some swell last week. Yeah. So um, for the listeners who might not know who you are, who are you and, and <laughs> how did you find surfing? Uh, I, I was fortunate enough. I, you know, I actually started surfing a little later in life. I wasn't, I, not until I was like 17 years old. But I stumbled my way into being in the movie Endless Summer 2. So right place, right time. And uh, that added the fact that I'm incredibly talented. Uh, oh, yeah, of I course. am a professional athlete. Let's not forget that. <laughs> so with all those gifts on my side, I was an endless summer too, and I've managed to turn uh, my favorite passion into a career. And I think that's that's sort of the dream. You said you stumbled your way into endless summer too. Can you can you tell us the story behind that? Uh, yeah, you know it's funny because never thought I was only going to ride longboards. I grew up in Newport Beach surfing at Blackies, 
And I, my whole plan was like, I, I've got to figure out how to ride a longboard and then I'll figure out what I'm going to ride after that. And there were a bunch of older guys surfing at the Newport Pier. And I'm like, well, it can't be that hard. Even look at these 40-year-old guys. You know, if they can do it, I can do it. And I'll just get as good as them and then I'll move on. I didn't realize who those guys were at the time that it turned out to be some of the best surfers from the 1960s that happened to still live in Newport Beach. So I had a, I set the bar pretty high, and it took a decade before I could get to you know, kind of surf <laughs> at get least that at level. the le- level close to them. And over the course of that, there were all the club comps, and then I moved to Santa Cruz and moved to Hawaii for a couple of years. And then at the end of that, the, the, the surf club up in Santa Cruz would make these corny little surf films, and I was always in them. And these were just VHS tapes, right? There was not, they're not for release. They were just for the club members. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know that the guy was doing that was sending them to Bruce. And so Bruce Brown had seen, had seen these corny little films along with Dana, his son. And when they were deciding on who they were going to choose for Endless Summer 2, you know, they knew they wanted a longboarder, they knew they wanted a shortboarder, and they're like, well, at least they knew I wasn't shy. I mean, because I, I think at the time there were about 20 guys that were uh, of a caliber that you could easily have put any one of the 20 into the film, including Joel. Joel's biggest drawback was he was too young. Because he was gonna, it was gonna take two to three years to make the film. And that's Joel Tudor. Yeah, Joel Tudor. And Joel, unfortunately, was 14 at the time, or 16. He's 16 then, because I was 26. He was gonna change too much over the course of two years, like puberty. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't. Uh, that's the sort of logistics you don't even think yeah. of until you're actually trying to produce the film. So he immediately got dropped out of that. And so then I got a phone call one day, and and you're like, you get a phone call, and somebody says it's Bruce Brown. You're like, wait, who's screwing with me right now and I'm like but it's his voice right you know you're like takes like three sentences and you're like holy shit that is Bruce Brown you know so I was just like gobsmacked I had no idea this was happening and then after a 10 minute conversation he gave me his phone number and I'm like all right and I hung up the phone and I'm like god damn it he said next time next time you get an opportunity to come south you know come stop in I want to meet you because you know I don't want to go around the world with an asshole I did that once (laughs) and call my wife and we realized that the, the trade show, Action ASR, Action Sports uh, Retailer, was going to be in San Diego in a month. And so I'm like, I'm actually was planning on going to the show. So I called Bruce back. That was probably the biggest sacking up I ever had to do. Mm-hmm. It was like within a half an hour, I was dialing that number. you know. So I called Bruce back. I think he was just as shocked as I was that I called him right back. and said, well, I'm going to the show. you know. And he's like, great. We'll come down a couple days early. We'll go for a surf at the ranch, and we'll see if I like you or not. And the so, rest is history. Yeah, and so I, a it didn't matter because I got to go surfing at the ranch. Yeah, yeah, I got a, I got two days at the Hollister Ranch driving in with Bruce and uh, surfing at Big Drake. So I mean, I was in heaven from that point on. So d- did you know Pat before the movie or no, no? And so Pat O'Connell, what happened was the ideal first choice for my co-star was Kelly, right? So that you know, yeah, that he was the top of the game. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was the new, young, super exciting. But at that time, Kelly was just it was the first year he just signed up for Baywatch. It was the year that he ended up winning his first world title. He had, a, he had a schedule, and we couldn't work around any other schedule. So when we knew Kelly was out, um, Bruce asked the magazines, you know, Surfer and Surfing, give me a list of your top ten guys that you think would be appropriate for what we're doing. And Pat's name was on the top of both lists. So, so there we, you go. We had a day of sur- – he brought Pat up to surf at the ranch one day. We did it, we're camera testing, trying to figure out what film, you know, with Kodak or Fuji. And uh, so that's when we met Pat, and obviously, you know, greatest kid in the world, so – yeah, I imagine he's a pretty fun person to travel around with. Um, he is now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Pat. You were okay, a so, a, so you're so a bit of a pain in the ass at the time. 
How, uh, how old was he at the time? Uh, how old were you at the time? He's five years younger than me, so I was, I think I was 26. So, so he was 21. So Asher and I, like, I'm sure everyone listening to the show, when they think of Costa Rica, the first film that leaps into their mind is the, is the, you know, the section where you and Pat are surfing Ollie's Point and Witch's Rock and all that kind of stuff. When we crash the plane right up front here. Yeah, so, like, you know, obviously when you, when you watch the movie, you have these funny little narratives that Bruce works in. And uh, tell us about the, pr- the plane sequence, because that just looks like crazy. Yeah, I that, mean, was, that was the pilot showing off, and we were supposed to have the plane for two weeks. He crashed it on the first day. So <laughs> that, right there at the end. So when we see the plane coming down the river, and it really looks like it's on the edge of it, like losing it. It, it does. It that was just genuinely it lo- it crashing. It, it loses it, and it crashes full speed in front of Ponga's restaurant <laughs> over there. <laughs> That's and amazing. It's, and it sat on the beach there for two years <laughs> with a broken wing. It sat on the beach? Yeah, there was nowhere to move it. You couldn't move it. I mean, this town was not what it is now. It and were you, were you guys in the plane when that no, happened? No, we were standing right at the tip of the river mouth waiting for him to come by like he was supposed to do, not showing off. So he crashes down there, and we look at each other, and we're like, okay, now what? That's oh, hilarious. So, you know, when you watch the movie, obviously the narrative is that you guys go on this one long trip around the world. And um, for any of our younger listeners that haven't seen it, it's just one of those movies that you have to see as a surfer. But you said that it actually took two years. So, it, you know, it, it was multiple trips. We, we were filming for 18 months. So we were on 24-hour call for those 18 months. So you'd come back from the trip, do your laundry, put it back in the bag, leave the bag by the door. Because that was what the contract said. You had to be able to leave in 24 hours. So the scene where you were actually folding your laundry and exactly, Pat was just that's crumpling exa- his clothes up and putting them in the bag. That's, that's exactly that's how I do fold my bag to this day, and it's exactly how much of a mess Pat still is. I think <laughs> I might fall a little bit more in the Pat O'Connell category. Yeah. And so that, that was sort of the first step of the career you've had to this day, because by all accounts, you've had a bit of an unorthodox run through the surf industry. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there, there were competitive longboarding back at that point in the 90s. There wasn't a lot of money in it first prize at a contest if you were lucky was a thousand dollars maybe fifteen hundred dollars and to go and spend two days battling to the death for fifteen hundred bucks just didn't seem like the best way to go about it i couldn't sign up for a lot of contests because i was traveling too much but i'd show up sometimes just because i was available just to hang out i ended up helping announce contests and narrate contests and so after the film, I ended up um, with Opera Sports. I ended up narrating a bunch of surf videos. And I still do. I do voiceover work for the World Surf League now. I see. So, you. Yeah, I do well, their shows on, on ABC. Am, ABC I, am I correct in saying that you were one of the commentators for the China contest? I was, did the live broadcast for the WSL in China. And I have a bit of a question that we, we, I don't know if we've ever got the name correct of the island. Is that <laughs> Han, Hanan? Hainan. Hainan. We were wrong. Yeah. So we were, we were discussing on the way here in the car, actually, we, we wanted to talk to you, and I don't know if it's a bit early in the interview to, to get technical, but we were really interested in what your thoughts were on the, the contest criteria for the WSL longboard events. Well, let's jump right into the, into the heat of it. So, so perhaps for our listeners that, that aren't so familiar with longboarding, you could just outline sort of the style that, that you like and what you consider good, and then what, they could, what their contest criteria is and, and where you think perhaps they could do better? Well... You have to understand there's two different things. There's longboarding the way that I think we all believe it should be ridden like mm-hmm. it was at the peak of the 60s performance longboarding back before there were short boards. Back when there was no such thing as a longboard. There were surfboards and then they had a shortboard revolution. So there are surfboards and shortboards. Let's start there. So it's kind of, I think at the peak of performance was kind of right around when, uh, a little after Nat won the 66 World Contest, mm-hmm. where nose riding was still important, but a, a little bit more performance in the wave was also tied together. 
So at that point, Nat was on a 9-4, and the performance was definitely showing as far as staying in the pocket, the energy of the wave, bigger roller coasters, this and that. But what, it, what had happened over the course of the last you know, 40, 50 years is that it turned into big shortboarding. So guys were trying to do on longboards what they couldn't, they weren't good enough to be on the pro shortboard tour. So they built nine foot tri-fin high performance longboards and the whole cri judging criteria kind of mirrored that as it progressed. And, it, and there was a point, you know, having been competing through the 80s and the 90s and watching all this happen where it was blending really nicely and then it just really went off the deep end into big shortboarding. And that was my argument against it. Mm -hmm. And fortunately with the new ownership when the group that bought the ASP and became the World Surf League, they knew they wanted to change it. Yeah. They knew they wanted longboarding to look like it was supposed to differentiate between shortboarding and longboarding. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, because of the um, athletes involved, they have kind of voting rights in this. So you've got the past, you know, the guys that have been on the tour for the last, you know, 10 years, and they're the top 24 guys, and they want to keep it high performance. The point we made to them and that I would argue with those athletes was you've spent the last 20 years driving the sport in a certain direction and you have zero support. I mean, the biggest sponsor in China for the men was an acai bowl company from Brazil. So <laughs> right. that shows you there's nothing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it really goes and, it, and I think... Which, which is surprising given the popularity of riding long, long, long boards. Right. And my argument was back in the Clark Foam days when Clark would publish his sales 50% of the foam Clark sold was over eight feet long. That means 50% of the boards every year being made are long boards. And the lifespan of a board over eight feet compared to a board under eight feet is 10 times longer. You know, if you have a daily rider short board, you're gonna disintegrate that board in 12 months, no question. Your long board will probably last you a year or 10. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they just do. So, but again, yes, more people ride them yet there's less support for them. So I basically told those guys, I said, look, we're going to reset the clock. It's got to go all the way back to 66. We'll change it as we move out of that. But that's where the WSL is going for. They're even gonna, and basically, this is a tribute to what Joel has come up I was about to with. say that. Joel Tudor and his duct tape invitational shows you their support. And a lot of those performance guys argued about it saying, you know, that's too extreme. And I said, he's the only guy that's figured out how to find any money. Vans has been a phenomenal sponsor for Joel personally and for traditional longboarding. And I said... Anybody else can find somebody that's going to put up a quarter to a half a million dollars, bring it on, and we'll have a contest in that venue. And I guess, like, you know, you and Joel are the only two real household names in terms of longboarding, which says a lot. So it was an interesting and difficult discussion with some of the athletes, and some of them totally get it, and they're like, all right, I'll get my single fin warmed up, and here we go. So the criteria going forward is going to be very traditional. Yeah, it seemed to me that they were rewarding a bit of traditional longboards this year there was that young Californian kid so Kevin Kevin Svarna and um, I can't remember the other, there were a bunch especially on the women's side the problem was is they got out competed mm -hmm. because the other guys on it have been competing so long there are a few ways you can be a little savvy in the water during a contest and make a guy make board poor choices and that's how those guys got eliminated and so that left the last the top 12 guys were all the high performance guys and it just kept going that way we had uh two years ago justin quintal wrote a, a real heavy single mm -hmm. fin and i, I want to say he made the semis and he's a he's a right. hell of a competitor and i gave justin a wild card and he couldn't make it to the contest this year oh yeah i know he got he got a lot of flack from joel and i had a conversation with joel ah oh. i yeah, there's you know it's like joel we're trying to make it better for the athletes that are following this 
you know the pathway you know attributing to what you're doing joel i don't want to i don't want to change anything about what you do with vans i'd love to bring you in if you want to be the commissioner for longboarding for the wsl let's have that conversation but i needed him to not at the same time put a leash on guys that wanted to compete in it and have a you know have a world title a wsl world title which joel has so yeah. let's and joel yeah. joel got his world title on a nine foot thruster yeah come on i mean we're, we're pushing it the right way so politics aside just on surfing which of the which of the younger guys do you now see coming up that that you really love just watching them surf They're outside of the contest well arena? you know there, there's a whole plethora of guys you know when you watch you know watch joel's event and i you know alex knows i used to hold him when he was two so his dad could surf at blackies so i've known <laughs> alex's entire life and i really like the way he surfs and he's really a good kid and there's obviously you know and joel and i are both in that stage where we're, we're it's it's out of our hand, you know. It's not about us. It's about what we love best about the sport and how to keep that going. So, like up in Santa Cruz, Riley Stone's just amazing. He's just such a lovely kid and really pretty to watch. I mean, every region's got their own. That's what's so amazing now, right? It's mm -hmm. not like they're. It's not like it's unique. There are cadres of phenomenal traditional longboarders in every surf town now. So let's give them a, a, an opportunity to do something special. I think that is such a productive way to push the sport forward. So one of the conversations that we're always having on the show is trying to uh, ob objectively measure, you know, what better and worse surfing is, because that the thinking being that when you can do that, you can then uh, coach it more easily and you can see what you need to work on. And, and then as you get better, you can have more fun in a wider range of conditions. But with longboarding, obviously, that's more difficult because there's such an aesthetic element to it, it less so than with shortboarding, you could argue. Um, and, and so I, I've got a couple of questions just to hear that the discussions Asher and I have had and I just want to kind of get your take on it one of them is so you talked about Alex Nost and you know when he's walking up the board he has these really fast small kind of steps uh, you know and Joel by contrast will sort of do like almost bigger slower steps to the nose um, I was just wondering when you're coaching do you encourage one or the other or do you teach people to do both or uh, you, it's not even a, a worthwhile discussion in the sense that you're going to walk out well, how is appropriate for the conditions that are going on right now. Sometimes you have to hurry. I've seen Joel take 13 steps to get up to the nose. I mean, I've seen him just like a tiny, tiny little cat. So I think the conditions will dictate whether you need to be in a little bit of a hurry. You're going to take bigger, smaller, how you're going to make this whole thing happen. So I don't discuss that with the client, uh -huh. you know, with a guest that's trying to figure out how to nose ride. I'm like, let's just figure out how to walk. And then, <laughs> right. and then you'll see when it's more appropriate to do this or the other. There's no better or worse. What are the biggest pitfalls that you find people make when hoping to progress their longboarding? Because there's a lot of people that surf a longboard okay. They'll, they'll just surf a bigger longboard, but they haven't quite pushed it to where it's actual longboarding, really trim-based, cross-stepping. Well, you know, we're lucky in that we took this sport up at a fairly young age. So a lot of the people that you're talking about took it up later in life. They don't have the time that we did to just make a thousand mistakes a thousand days in a row. That's, you know, that's what we all did, right? Walk off the end, walk off the end, walk off the end, and just mess around. Their surf days are so precious, mm. <laughs> they don't really want to waste any part of what they're doing. I try to encourage people to think of the last third of the wave as their experimental part. Enjoy the wave, get the, and now when it's getting down to almost nothing, or you can see that little, it's gonna close out 30 meters down, that's where you should start experimenting with your walking and changing things. Because then you, you know, you're not. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty much the same kind of strategy that we use. All new maneuvers start at the end, and then you start shuffling to the beginning, and then fitting the new ones on the end, and kind of pulling it all back in like that. 
So I, I'm sure that you find this uh, when you're coaching people, uh, and this is probably the most common thing, is there's a 99% of people can get about a foot from the nose, mm. and then that last sort of six or 12 inches is, is like the that's Grand the, Canyon. That's the easiest discussion, it's like you're already there. Right. Yeah. Just you, take the last if step. If you're a foot from the nose, you're all the way there. Just don't don't even think about it and get get yourself all the rest of it. I mean, sometimes you have to back up and restep to get all the way out to the tip. You know, and it's funny. Most of my clients actually are riding smaller boards. Uh huh. I mean, most of the people I work with ride sub eight foot boards. Really? Yeah. So I'm trying to help them transition off of long boards and on to mid-sized and even short boards. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I work with a lot of people that are when the conditions are right, they're on a six six or a seven zero. What was it that got you into coaching? What, what drew you to that sort of uh, facet of the sport? A gentleman by the name of David Tashton called me in 1998 and wanted to go, said his kids were fans and he wanted me to take them surfing. So we set up a day, a, a day in Newport Beach, long story shortened, and he was my first client. And I was going to do it because he was a friend of a friend. I was just going to go surfing with him and his kids. And he's like, no, 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 you got to get paid to do this. I'm like, let me get paid. He's like, I'll pay a golf pro, pay a ski pro. Pay a surf pro. Pay a surf pro. I'm like... That's an interesting thought. So, yeah, 1998, he became my first client, and then he handed me off to some friends of his in New York, and I did, like, two trips a year. And it was just, like, a specialty thing, because I was sponsored by the... At the time, O'Neill was a really great sponsor of mine, so I had I had the income that I needed, and this was found money, you know, so bought a hot tub with it. You know, did something special each time, <laughs> you know. And then over the course of the years, it became, uh, you know, from two trips a year to six trips a year to 12 trips a year. So uh, throughout the year, I'm in a different location around the world, depending on where a client wants to go. So clients will approach me and they'll say, I've always wanted to go to the Maldives. And we look at the appropriate time windows when we would go and we set up the plan and the opportunities that you can go when you go there. Or they'll say, where can I go in May? And I'm like, do you want to travel two hours, 10 hours, 22 hours? And then with that opportunity, we start you know, building a trip. And then I handle all the logistics in country. I help you figure out these are the options of where you can stay. Do we need cars? Do we need boats? What do we need? You know, small planes, all that. And you were saying that you know now you're you're pretty oversubscribed and in demand. So it's not like you're looking for other. Well, let's put it this way: I don't I don't have a website, and there's no way to contact me. <laughs> so, unless you are a client, a friend of a client of mine, it's going to be really hard to reach out and get to me. So I guess you probably found a, a nice pool of, of, of people that you get on well with and uh, that you enjoy working I with. I have a fantastic group of clients that are just great. And then I've got relationships in every country. So when I go to the Maldives, I work with the Tropic Surf Guys. They run a fantastic program there. And so I piggyback on top of them. Yeah, that's, that's pretty high on my list, actually, the Maldives. Yeah, I think I we might have to organize a Surf Simply trip there yeah. before too long. Um, is there anything in particular that you look for in a location when you are planning a coaching trip? Any style of waves? Any Again, the style of wave is going to depend on who the client is and mm-hmm. what they're trying to do. And I run trips from it being a single one or two guys to uh, an extended family where all the cousins and kids and I'll have 16 people. So depending on what they need is the type of waves we're looking for. Six guys that really know how to surf, we're going to a place totally different than with the big family that's trying to get the little kids in the water too. And obviously you're one of the most well-traveled surfers in the world. So what's your place that you get excited to go to? Well, I mean, I, this is what I'll tell you. If somebody were to offer me a free surf trip anywhere in the world, yeah. I'd go to Hainan, China. Hainan, right. China? Yeah. What, what would bring you there more than anywhere else? No crowds. A giant tropical island, reefs, point breaks, river mouse, waters 75 to 85 degrees, coconut palms, it's just like Hawaii, but no Hawaiians. 
Wow, you're already selling me on it. That wasn't even on my radar. And it's not even that, but it's not easy. Because I don't know how your Chinese is, but mine's not very good. Pretty weak. So you can't figure it out on your own. You need somebody there. You need, But there's five-star, six-star hotels right on the beaches. There's a small surf cadre there that that's what who you need to use when you're there. Otherwise, you'll never find a wave. For a listener looking to go to Hanan, when is their surf season? Uh, they actually have surf you know, nine, almost ten months out of the year. And the best season is November through March, pretty much what it is here in Costa Rica, November through April. And that's their winter season, and that's when the Wanning Coast gets the most of its surf. And then when they get the summer typhoon stuff, it's coming out of the south, and that's down by Sanya. So it's, it's surprising. Well, you know, the best thing about surfing, what you have to remember, is it's supposed to be fun. You know, that's what I enjoyed when I was down in Guiones, about the attitude about everybody. A lot of times when there's a lot of surf schools in the water, it can get tense, whatever. And I just thought everybody down there was, you know, real respectful of anybody else that was getting the first wave of their life. And I think as surfers, we see that there's a difference between a beginner and a kook. You mm-hmm. know, a beginner is totally innocent, doesn't know right from wrong, just trying to get that first wave. It's the blind squirrel. Let him, let him find that acorn and have a good time. The kook that looks at you, paddles, looks at you again and continues to paddle and drop in on you, that person needs to be discussed with. You know, in a nice way, but it's like, don't do that. That you know, we know what the rules are. Yeah. But you know, like when you, I love seeing that person get their first wave. You know, it's like, eh, that guy's life's ruined. <laughs> <laughs> He's into this forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll never contribute to society. So it's just, it, you know, if you're not having fun, go find another way to spend the day. You know, it just you feel so much better being in the water. So share it with people. Take care of the whole thing. And that's all we want. You know. Um, I have one more class question, and if it's too personal we cannot do this one but a lot of the guys i work with at surf simply come with ailments whether it's you know they they threw out a shoulder and they have to get beyond that and paddling or a hip problem for flexibility or and i know that you've been diagnosed with ms and which is 19 years ago yeah yeah which is is pretty disabilitating for surfing so could you talk at all about that experience well it it could be i mean ms affects everyone differently right so it's it's autoimmune disorder so the white blood cells in your brain attack the myelin sheath which is the insulation around the wires in your brain that tell your brain your brain tells your body what to do so mine went after my balance and after my right leg i mean if i was an accountant i don't think that would bother me much but for what i do for a living it seemed to be fairly specific so it was kind of a gnarly couple of years figuring it out. And then because the treatments are so um, steroid-based drugs, and it would have destroyed my joints by now. I was 26 years old at the time. So 25 years later, your joints, after being on steroids for 25 years, I mean, take a look at baseball players, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was fortunate in that I had a very wait-and-see um, Stanford doctor who, who said, look, let's see how bad yours gets. Let's see what else we can do. So I changed diet, did a whole bunch of things. And there's a couple of really good diets. This Dr. Terry Walls has a really good diet, which is a good thing to look up. if you, anybody. It's a good mm-hmm. thing to eat anyway, eat that way. Yeah. But if for MS, it has actually some application. And I was really fortunate that it, I did not have further episodes. So I'm virtually you know, 17 years without an episode. And, yeah, and I, I guess whatever kind of modality you're going to use to treat it, it's just the, the risk benefit. And you're going with the diet route, there's yeah. so little risk. 
Right. Um, there, no, there's no risk, and it's just if it doesn't do anything, then he comes and hits you with the drugs, and that's yeah. You, and maybe not taking the drugs to knock it back, and then going using the dr- diet to replace it, which is what Dr. Terry Walls had done when she was diagnosed herself. Right. And watching you out surfing this morning, I mean, you know, you're looking pretty stylish and smooth out there. Well, I am, and I'm recovering from a torn hamstring, so that's you know, I tore it in Hawaii in November. So not it's, half bad. Yeah, it's getting better now, but the physical therapy is just brutal. So. You said it was 19 years ago that you were diagnosed. That's sort of midway through a surfer's journey or a surfer's <laughs> life. What, what kind of mindset do you have to get over it at well, that point? And, and here it is. is uh, I think it was put in perspective for me because I was seeing the same neurologist that, uh, that Mike Locatelli was seeing in Santa Cruz. And he had what was thought to be a benign brain tumor that turned out to be very invasive. And over the, you know, he's, he's dead now. And over the course of the years that I was dealing with it, he was, he was going up for horrible treatments in San Francisco, at, you know, and I'm like, having MS is bad, but I don't have what Mike has, you know, and it's, everything puts it in perspective, right? And if you look at the world the glass is half full, not half empty, I think you have a better attitude. I mean, we're all going to get something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all die. <laughs> well, quality of life can change for all of us. So keep a good attitude about it because it could be worse. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good life lesson for everyone and, and probably a very good note to end on. And uh, So look, thank you very much no. for speaking with yeah, us. Thank you so much a for great joining pleasure, us. Great pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, I hope we'll see you back in Guiana's again yeah, soon. Hopefully. And say yeah. hi. Awesome. All right. Okay, going into some listener emails. Um, we've been sitting on quite a lot of listener emails for a while. We keep getting overexcited, as we may have done about longboarding earlier and overrunning and therefore pushing the, the listener emails back a little bit. But the other thing is I, I made a decision about a year ago that we should try and keep the podcast below an hour in length. And based on a lot of the feedback that, that you guys as listeners have been sending us, we've decided that maybe that, that hard stop at an hour isn't so important and that we can maybe run a little bit longer. A lot of you seem to have quite long commutes and, uh, and appreciate the length of the show. So that's going to leave us a little bit more space to, uh, to answer your questions on air. So uh, we've got a, a few. Do you want to start us off with one, Harrison? Sure. We'll start off with a question from James Ward. He's asking us, who has the best all-around surfing technique on the WSL Tour? Is there a particular surfer that you guys try to emulate or use as a case study for your clients? Who does what really well? Who has some technical flaws? What do you guys think? Um, for me, Mick Fanning. Has, yeah, has that just comes to mind. The best technical surfer perhaps ever. Yeah, I mean, it, to the extent, in fact, that sometimes the, the criticism has been leveled at him that he's boring mm. because his, his surfing is so technically good, it becomes predictable. But if you're going to try and teach somebody, Mick Fanning is just incredible because yeah, he, he's pretty good. I think pretty much post, post that leg injury that he had to rehab, I think he had to you know relearn how to do a lot of stuff. And he obviously just set about that with such a mechanical determination that it, it, the result is just beautiful to watch. Yeah. I'm going to throw in two others off the top of my head. Uh, might be a bit goofy foot biased, but Ace Bucken, mm-hmm. really good technical surfer. His yeah. bottom to top turn, both forehand and backhand, is, is pretty much precise what I coach from when I'm coaching. Another good one, Owen Wright. We were talking about how he's all around, and he, he's another guy that has really, really good technique, and he's a good guy to draw technique from for a bigger surfer. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, James asked if there's anyone that we use, you know, specifically use when we teach, and we do have a couple of, of clips of Mick Fanning that we use. The one we use the most is Steph Gilmore. Good um, choice. Who, again, just just has that very clean technique. Again, student of, of, you know, the Australian push to, you know, Surfing Australia came up with this plan that they were going to 
breed the next generation of, of, of surfing superstars. And you, you look at, you know, Mick Fanning, Steph Gilmore, Owen Wright, their plan worked. They have this, this whole generation of just fantastically technically gifted surfers. I think a cool one to bring in, I wouldn't necessarily put him at the top, but I think it's cool to see someone from the younger generation coming in with somebody who's put so much work and emphasis into the technique aspect of his surfing would be Connor Coffin. Yeah. And I bring him up in particular because he's put a heavy emphasis on surfing on rail. Yeah. And he works a lot with Taylor Knox, Tom Curran, guys that you know are very committed to powerful rail. And Br- Brad Gerlach was his coach for a long and, time. Wasn't and Brad Gerlach as well. And uh, it's, you know, coming from Santa Barbara, which is basically my second home at this point, it was, you know, cool to see him surfing in person a couple of times, but also just watch. I mean, I started following him from when he first came on the scene as a teenager and watch his surfing progress and just, I mean, his style and technique is just impeccable. It's great, isn't it? Um, Seeing as we did so much talking about longboarding, Asher, do you have a technically good longboarder to watch out for? Joel. Joel. Joel probably has the best technique of any longboarder. So he also asked technical flaws. Anyone, anyone surf in a way that you dislike? I have an interesting response to this. Not in a way that I dislike, but someone I wouldn't use for coaching. Mm-hmm. John John Florence. Mm-hmm. He, How come? Because he, he does things in a way that are very unique to him. He'd be really good to teach from if you're teaching more of the principles of like, all right, what's the board doing? And then how do we make it do that? But when, I'm, when we're teaching surfers about where to put their hands and stuff, he's never the one I draw from. That being said, he's my favorite surfer. So, I have a similar case study uh, for me. Clay Marzo, a ridiculously mm. good surfer that will do amazing stuff, but just not in a way that we try and teach. <laughs> well, Tommy, it's, I feel like that brings up an interesting point because, Harry, you and I were talking the other day. I don't know if you remember this, about nine times out of ten, if you look at somebody falling on a surfboard, chances are something was off in their technique. Yeah. And Clay Marzo and John John are two surfers that are known for being basically glued to their board. I mean, Clay Marzo mm-hmm. will fall, fall on his head but stand up again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, I feel I mean, like John John purposefully falls and then recovers you know, it. He might be an exception to the rule, Clay Marzo, because he's just insanely athletic and very flexible. But, at, you know, it brings up an interesting point. Well, it does. You know, John John's a really interesting example. That, you know, the, the, the standard teaching of you know say how to do a bottom turn is you think that mick fanning bottom turn real deep compression you know everything coiled spring as you go in and extension out you watch john john go into a bottom turn and often he stood totally tall yeah he does yeah there's two of them he stands super tall and he throws his trailing arm back right which is the opposite of what we teach which then begs the interesting question john john obviously has a huge amount of innate talent would he surf better if he was coached to compress into his bottom turns and to throw that arm forwards through his bottom turn? Or has he found a whole different way? You know, the, the reason that you can compress through the bottom turn is to allow you to put more weight through your feet to hold the board and, and oppose more water flowing against you. Has John John found a different technique? And, and there is no answer to that because nobody's tried putting, you know, any, any equipment on a board to try and measure, say, John John versus McFanning. Yeah, that's one of the things that I love about surfing is that very question right there. Yeah. So, still on the subject of the WCT, uh, Drew Verderame, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Drew, uh, got in touch. He says, hey guys, I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, I was wondering what you thought a WCT surfer spends in a year traveling on tour. I know they all live in different places, but I'd be curious to know on average. Maybe even the WQS guys as well. Any thoughts? Well, this is something I've always been interested in because just from a standpoint of 
all of us have traveled to surf around the world. Mm-hmm. We know how the costs are with board bags and airline fees are always a huge chunk of it. But then, you know, you have to think some of these guys are staying in friends' houses. Some of them have to book hotels. Some of them bring their families. Absolutely. I think between board costs and, you know, travel costs, basically everything coming together, I have to think that, and this has, you know, been interesting to me because guys on the QS aren't making that much money prize-wise and a lot of them don't have huge sponsor deals. I have to think that they're coming out on the bottom, like they're losing money, which is interesting because I think surfing is one of those sports that's in that sense only accessible to people who are financially stable or have support. Absolutely correct. So Stab Magazine did did their best to do an in-depth breakdown of it. They figured that uh, a QS surfer, QS level surfer, if you were to try and compete in the nine 10,000 events each year and then a couple of the 6,000s, which would give you qualification. And that matches up quite nicely with the 11 events on the men's WCT tour. Their estimate was that it would be forty to $50,000. That um, is a chunk of change. Yeah. So that's, that's working out that, you know, an airfare, car rental, bed and board for two weeks at that location. It's probably going to, you know, you'd be doing well if you get that down below $4,000. That said, there's a lot of the guys that have, a, you know, uh, Quicksilver, Rip Curl, Billabong, those, those companies. When, those, when you have a big event, those companies will often rent a big house and you can sort of bunk up, you know, three to a room at the Rip Curl house. But it means that you don't spend any money. It's a lot cheaper than Rip Curl trying to cover your individual costs for them yeah. to just rent a house and let you know that you can stay there. So that can potentially save you a little bit. Um, you've also got to include the boards. An average WCT surfer is reckoned to go through about 50 boards a year. High-level QS surfer might go through 20 or 30. Obviously, the top guys are getting the boards for free, but actually, even on the world tour, you know, a lot of guys are paying cost for boards. It's $300 or so a board. You know, 30 boards, that's $9,000 on top. It's, it's not cheap. It's not cheap at all. Um, that said, the prize money on the CT has gone up a lot. If you just show up for a men's or women's world tour event, you get nine grand. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's nine grand for a round one loss. So that's that's pretty good. Uh, the best, the, the highest paid surfer was John John Florence and uh, Tyler Wright, who both earned just over $400,000 last year. So they're covering their costs. Uh, that said, at the other end of the scale, on the WQS, uh, there are guys in the top 20 who are earning less than $20,000 a year in competitive winnings. Yeah, they've gone out, they've made the top 20 in the tour and they're only making 20 grand a year. So their sponsorship is going to need to be making, what, 60,000, 70,000 if they're going to be breaking even. And that's probably not happening. Uh, the women are even harder. Um, the top, top 10 females are earning less than 10 grand a year from competitive winnings. So it's a pretty tough life. Yeah. Strangely glad that I'm not a uh, pro surfer. Okay, so we have a listener email from Terry Keogh. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that one right. It's titled, If Money Were No Object. Uh, Hello, everyone. I was recently introduced to the life of celebrity Instagram figure Dan Bilzerian. Dan lives a life of suns out, guns out, travel and partying. I couldn't help but think what I would do if if time and money were not of concern. I thought, of course, that I would surf more, lots more, which led me to this question. If money was no object and you had a year starting on September the 1st, where would you go and when? At the end of the year of solid travelling, your aim is to be a vastly improved surfer. My year has me leaving Perth in Western Australia and heading to Indonesia until early December. Winter in Hawaii, and then he's not sure, maybe Costa Rica. 
So he's asking, where would we go with unlimited potential? Well, see, for me, there's a very dangerous statement in here, and it says, money, no object. <laughs> yeah, you're going all over the place. Well, see, my my dream has always been, like for a long, long time. Do you remember when Quicksilver did the crossing? And they had that, that converted trawler, and they took it all the way around the world, and they were checking different spots and all sorts of things. And then right at the end, and it shows how the surf industry has changed. This must have been right in the middle of the boom times. Right at the end, they got a Grumman Albatross seaplane that met up with it with, with them and they went through uh, I think a bits of the Caribbean and then up into the North America with this seaplane trailing That's a cool video yeah it was a very cool video but if money's no object I want that plane you can live aboard a Grumman Albatross they're, they're big enough that you can have a bedroom in there there's already a galley in them because they were long range patrol aircraft that thing's got a 2000 mile range it can land on water or on land and I'm going to Follow the swells. That would be amazing. Yeah, that's a good answer, that's Harry. Cool. That was um, the best answer. I think it's safe to say you're probably the only person in the world that would give that answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's some out there thinking. I just, oh, oh, it'd be so much fun. Could I, Actually, could I, personally, what I would like is a, a Catalina flying boat because I think they're beautiful. And there was a whole thing after World War II when they retired them. There were two companies that would turn them into flying yachts, basically. If money's no object, can I come with you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. perfect. Let's do this. Um, no, I, uh, yeah, I, that'd be great fun. And next we got a question from Justin Murphy. Hello, Justin. Hope all is well in San Francisco. Hey, guys. I hope you're doing well. Still loving the podcast. Great stuff. I was thinking about board design, and a few random questions popped into my head that I thought might be fun for you to explore on the show. Uh, a lot of boards play with things like thickness, width, rocker, etc. Has anyone played with thin placement and canting? It seems like it could have a huge impact on how a board feels through its turns. Along those lines, do asymmetrical boards adjust the fin placement and canting on one side? feels like varying the fin placement and canting on each side would make a big difference in how a board would ride in one direction. But varying the fins might make things like a roundhouse cut back hard because you essentially have to complete a turn on the opposite hand in a whitewater hit type of motion, if that makes sense. It does make sense. So, uh, yeah, I think to the first part of that question is really easy to answer. Absolutely, people have been playing around with uh, fin cant and fin placement, something that uh, a lot of shapers play around with. Do you remember Red X fins with the box that you could move up and down? So Red X and Lockbox both had fins that you could move up and down. I used to have Lockbox in a lot of my fin. You were trying to find some Red X fins Red the X other fins, day, yeah. weren't you? There was also a box called Fourway, which you could adjust the turned in, on. Uh, so for listeners, the cant is, if you look at the side fins on a board, you'll notice that they're not vertical. Uh, the fins are actually lent slightly outwards. Uh, and the idea of this is because side fins are uh, foiled, they generate a little bit of lift. And if you angle the fins sort of four or five degrees over, that lift actually helps push the tail up out of the water a little bit. Uh, and there was, do you remember there was that H2 set? by FCS that was massively canted. They, they were yeah. silver and they had way more cant on them uh, than other fins. And they, they, they produced a lot more lift out of the water. They were, they were meant to be really good for getting through soft sections in the wave. I remember seeing a board in a, in a surf shop. It was like a demo board that had fins that would pivot. Yeah, like pivot as outwards the water, slightly. Yep, as the water pushed mm -hmm. against them so the cant would change as you were riding. Yeah, I remember seeing those as well. So yeah, people have played with that a lot. And in terms of asymmetry, uh, I think people have played with just about every aspect of asymmetry that exists, but it's still on such a small scale that 
nobody really knows what works. But you see a lot of boards with quad on one side and a sort of twin fin on the other, don't you? Ryan Birch. Ryan Birch. Great yeah. looking twins. I think that the big thing with asymmetry is it depends what you're going for, doesn't it? Because a lot of asym boards are designed around like surfing a right-hand point break. Yeah. So that all of your bottom turns are going to be on your right rail and all of your top turns are going to be on your left rail. Mm-hmm. With the exception, as Justin said, if you go for a big sort of roundhouse, then you're going to be doing a, a top turn on your opposite rail. But the, the other side for asymmetry is that you set the board up for toe side versus heel side. And, you know, the way that I apply my weight onto my toes will always be different, as we said at the start of the show, to the way I apply weight to my heels. And so you can shape the board and it it won't work. You know, I can't give my board to Will, who rides regular foot, because it just won't work for him. But it'll work great for me. Mm -hmm. And, And it'll work regardless of whether I'm trying to do top turns, bottom turns, riding left or right because it's not set up around going in one direction on a wave, it's, it's around how I'm applying weight. Last thing then, before we go, a few little what to watches to tide you over until the next episode. Tommy, what do you got for us? Um, so I really enjoyed Mick Fanning's this video in Ireland. It reminded me a lot of home actually, you know, that climbing over headlands and yeah. the, the kind of excitement of knowing over over this headland you're either going to see something awesome or something just terrible and you're not going to paddle out but yeah really good to see what he's been up to now he's kind of stopping doing as many competitions harrison my what to watch for this week is an edit that surfer magazine posted about seal beach uh the shore break there in california just firing on this last swell very square round barrels and guys just getting absolutely pitted basically waves that i wish i could surf every day and good music too eric clapton where is seal beach seal beach is i'm probably gonna get this wrong i think it's just north of huntington beach okay so it's la la beach is up there Mm -hmm. okay interesting ash i know it's been sounding like i've been preaching from the church of dane reynolds but dane reynolds (laughs) just released a 20 minute edit called rejects of all of the footage he didn't use for chapter 11 and it's just great on the subject of asymmetry he rides an asym in there he rides a lot of crazy boards and yeah i I love dane surfing and i love the way he scores his videos i think the music always really works so i uh can't recommend it enough fantastic stuff so my edit is uh hot off the press i was going to recommend something a little different but i found in my news feed just this morning in fact honolua bay last week looking incredible really really fun so a uh, great little edit that i will post interestingly called whiteboard wednesday yeah given that that's familiar. the name of our uh, tutorial series on uh, on youtube but anyway you will see why it's called whiteboard wednesday there is uh, i did did you work out who that was harrison I, we were talking yeah, about so there was, i was just gonna say i thought this edit was particularly cool this was going to be my what to watch originally because the whole concept behind a whiteboard and surfing is that you've got no sponsors there's yeah. no stickers on your board and there's one bit in this video, I was just trying to track it down, I think it's right at the minute mark, where there's one guy absolutely ripping this wave to shreds with insane style. Um, I'd love to find out who it is, but I, I haven't been able to put it together. Honolulu Bay, I really want to go and surf. There's there's a bunch of waves around the world that I, I are on my bucket list. We were talking about money, no option. I would, I would sit at Honolulu until a swell like that turned up. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is all from us for this week. Uh, If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to get in touch with me. You can email podcast at surfsimply.com. If you want to get hold of any of the other guys, you can reach them on their social media handles. Asher? I am at King Asher on all social media. 
Harrison? I am at Harrison Avery. And Tommy? I'm at Tommy Potterton. P-O-T-T-E-R-T-O-N. There we go. And we can see lots of pictures of your bird photography. Yes, on my Instagram, if that's what you're into. There we go. (laughs) For now then, ladies and gentlemen, from all of us, goodbye. Bye. 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 That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. (laughs) 